Hey, Kevin here, Skylabs, bringing you another podcast. Definitely going to be a fun one. We appreciate you guys listening to our content this way. If you'd like to support the channel, definitely head over to skylabsaudio.com forward slash shop. It's a great way to support the channel if you're getting enjoyment out of this content. And with all that out of the way, let's get into this episode. And thank you for listening. So we've received a lot of questions down in the comments, what we consider to be maybe a little bit more in depth, maybe a topic that would be too long to respond in a, in a comment. And our thought was, well, maybe we'll ask you guys to submit your questions for Big Brains Rob, and that way we could do a video and maybe make it a little bit easier to explain the answers. And also make sure you let us know down in the comments, is this something you'd like to see more of? We definitely have more questions than we're gonna be able to get to. And if you guys like this type of content, uh, we're happy to uh, continue to do these. So I wanna thank everybody out there for submitting their questions. We're gonna keep that post open. If you'd like to keep on submitting more questions, we'll do another follow-up video and we'll continue the series along. And with that all out of the way, let's get into our first question. And our first question comes from Anthony. As someone who is just getting into vintage audio and wants to learn how to start doing repairs, what's your opinion on what is the first thing to start with and or learn? If you could tell yourself something when you first started, what would you tell yourself when you first started that would have helped you a lot down the road? I would say start with the basics. Some of that stuff can be a bit tedious uh, but you want to learn electrical safety. You want to learn uh, Ohm's law, pretty much backwards and forwards. Get a feel for how electricity flows in a circuit and what the different components do and build out into systems from there. Uh, what would I tell myself a hundred years ago when I started this stuff? Thou shalt always visually inspect the circuitry first. Uh, it's amazing how many things you find uh, just by looking and smelling and looking for burnt resistors, cracked PC boards and things like that. If nothing's apparent, uh, you probably wanna go to the power supplies, at least check, make sure you've got the right voltages there. I've seen you probe a lot too. You know, you, you take a little piece of, you know, something non-conductive and you'll kind of push on boards and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, those bamboo skewers that you buy at the grocery store for uh, making shish kebabs. Yeah. They work great because they're non-conductive and yeah. uh, they don't scratch things and you can kind of reach in and push and pull things a little bit gently. You don't want to bend components over and short things out, but uh, push and pull a little bit. So those things, you know, especially that don't jump right in and uh, get into the uh, schematics and all of this stuff and overthink things before you at least look things over and twiddle the knobs and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. You know, and I'm still guilty of that. Sometimes I'll just kind of jump in a little bit too much and then I'll find something obvious later and go, oh yeah. Well, and that is the one thing about electronics that <clears throat> I do think is a little bit different than repairing like a modern piece where, you know, because of the age and because of the heat that's been on these boards and you know, mm -hmm. You're talking about solder joints and contact points that have been that have been there for 40 years. A lot of times, rather than a component uh, failure failure or something yeah. like that. And even if it is a component failure, a lot of times you can track down at least where to start looking by 
if something's burnt, you know, sure. on a board or something like that. Great question, Anthony. Yeah. Um, appreciate it. And our next question comes from Chris. I think this is a great question. Uh, from a technician's perspective, do you think certain brands are designed with the ability to repair more than other brands? Great question. Oh yeah, uh, it depends on the unit and uh, when it came out, you know, every brand makes some turds. Um, I tend to like Macintosh. Uh, they seem to be able to do an equal or superior job in performance with far fewer parts and a more straightforward approach to the circuitry design. And a lot of the uh, boards have plug-in connectors. Uh, also, they're fabulous about tech support. They're actually still in business. There's somebody there, they answer the phone. Um, you can get old, old obsolete parts for them that you couldn't get for any other unit. I, that's number one with me. Uh, Pioneer's usually not too bad, uh, except that there's a lot of uh, wires you have to disconnect a lot of times from a board and then extend them, resolder them back on so that you can test the board while it's in circuit yeah. because you can't get to it. Um, generally, they're not too bad. Uh, Yamaha and Sansui, sometimes their stuff is a little compact, uh, hard to get to the, the boards. Um, but Sansui has really good service documentation, so that, that helps a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's in color. A lot of the service manuals are in color, and they show the signal flow through it and everything. Yeah. Saves you a lot of time trying to suss things out yourself. Yeah, because I, I hear you sometimes, you're working on something, and you realize that really the, the service manual, you know, there's no, there's no voltages or it's just poor documentation or a poor upload or what have you. And I know it makes a huge difference. It reminds me of people when they, when they'll ask the question of, have you ever worked on this or have you ever worked on this? And I always explain it to them as if you have a roadmap, it doesn't matter the manufacturer. You know, if you've got the voltages, you've got the service documentation, it doesn't matter if it was made by Macintosh or if it was made by Sanyo. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, the components and the theory behind them are all the same. You don't want to be backwards engineering the thing to fix it. Yeah, schematic without normal operating voltages to compare to, you know, what's normal uh, really is just ends up being a bunch of pretty pictures of components, you know. Yeah. You can't troubleshoot the thing just with an ohm meter checking, oh, that resistor or, or this or that, you know, going all the way through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the main thing about certain things being harder to repair than others, usually is just physical accessibility. So it's, it's not always so much as figuring out the circuitry as getting to it to make your tests and repairs. Yeah. Yeah, so great question, Chris. Um, I think what you're saying is, is maybe all are guilty in some way of making it difficult to get to the board. It's more of it's a, a piece by piece. Yeah, it's a model by model number. Sometimes there's, yeah. They just have a certain model or two that's really hard to work on and the other ones are easy. Whereas maybe a designer brand like Macintosh really put the effort into keeping these pieces serviceable even to today. Yeah, and exactly. Uh, because I do remember one time we had an issue with uh, a Macintosh that was made in the 70s where they had done a production run change. 
and the schematic we had had a different board in it. I don't remember which one, but we just said, well, hey, let's just give them a call. You know, let's see what they say. And an actual tech called us back within five minutes. We had a new PDF of the schematic for the board that the, you were working the on. Updated, <clears throat> yep. And to get that level of service from like Sansui or Pioneer or Yamaha, who is, you know, traded hands so many times, and they, they consider all that equipment, you know, it's bygone and legacy, and there's just not any support from those manufacturers. No, they so. don't have parts anymore. They don't even have the service information anymore. Right. It's, you have to get it from a third party, and yeah. a lot of times the, the scan quality's not good. And Great question, really appreciate it. Yeah. Our next question comes from My Turkish Life, and they say, hey Rob, what hi-fi system do you have at home? I'm kind of like the mechanic that drives a rusty Fiat to work every day. Gotcha. Uh, mostly have a collection of low-end mismatched crap, but it works. Um, I do have a few somewhat nicer pieces, but they usually end up in my shop with good intentions of going through them and then putting them up upstairs and setting them up. And I never get time to work on them. So <laughs> there, there they sit. Yeah. I've known a few techs and they seem to kind of have the same story. And we get people that come in sometimes and they'll, they'll even ask me, they'll say, you know, what kind of stereo does Rob have? Or what does he think of, you know, this piece? And I, and my response is usually the same thing. And it's like, and not to lump you in with other techs, but it does seem like the other techs that I know say the same thing. And they'll say, I'm more into test equipment than I am actually the listening side of stereo equipment. It's almost like a lot of techs, their enjoyment with this equipment is fixing it. And therefore the test equipment, because I know you have a lot of test equipment. I'm a, I'm a test equipment junkie. Yeah, I know there's a whole community out there of, I'm actually a member of one of the Facebook groups for vintage test equipment. And a lot of techs seem to really take a lot of pride and joy in their vintage test equipment. I've seen test equipment of stuff that you've refurbished and it is incredible. You know, some of these pieces of test equipment are are just as good looking by their design as the piece of equipment it's servicing. There's a few levels of vintage test equipment or the old 1940s or whatever things, 50s that I like to restore and sometimes it's fun to use them on old radios and things like that, the yeah. way that they used to be used. Uh, most of the time I don't because I don't have time and so it's easier to shortcut it with a modern oscilloscope or, sure. or what have you. Um, and then there are uh, level two, I would, I would say, are really high-end stuff that cost a fortune, say in the 70s or 80s that you can get now on eBay. And mm -hmm. if you can fix it up yourself, you can have something that they don't make anymore yeah. that uh, you can actually use. I yeah. mean, it's it's as good as anything newer, uh, better in a way, because I, I have a, a Marconi uh, FM deviation meter, you know. I don't think they even make anything like that anymore, you yeah. know. Do I need to have it? Probably not, but you yeah. know, sometimes that stuff's really handy. And then there's the, the third level, which is, you know, the newest stuff that you can get, mm -hmm. you know, that 
and it, it might be sometimes it's you know made in china stuff that you get on amazon signal generators and i blow them up i throw them away and get another one you have an sx424 is that right yeah yeah you have an sx424 and i do i also want to say it's not that texts don't i mean you rob has really excellent taste in music that was something we figured out when you first started coming in you know you've shown me a lot of bands that um that I still listen to today, so. And vice versa. And in and, and no means am I saying, you know, you don't enjoy music or you don't enjoy stereo equipment. There is something there where I do think um, it's like a mechanic. It's not necessarily driving the car that's fun to them. It's more of fixing the car. You have a fixer's mentality mm -hmm. and that's where you get your enjoyment. Not that you don't enjoy a good piece of stereo equipment. Yeah. I just wanted to well, say that. The stuff I have sounds good good to my ears, well, but... Uh, yeah. An SX424, perfect. Yeah. And I have a couple of big Zenith Allegro speakers, which I actually think were built by Pioneer and they sound pretty good, but I bought yeah. them at an auction for 10 bucks and I cleaned them up and they sound great. And yeah. they, they sit up there on, uh, on the uh, cabinetry above the TV and I play the TV through the Pioneer and then through those. Yep. And then I have a little Bluetooth adapter, you know, if you want, you can just play music through it. Yep. Perfect. Uh, say background music at a party or something like that. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And this comes from ZZZ. Do old transistors sound better than new transistors? Short answer. No. Sound always has to do with the electrical parameters, you know, the waveform that you're getting through it. Um, and, you know, the new transistors, if anything, are better. Uh, it's just a matter of matching them, you know. It's, it's uh, you have to figure out what's going to work in the old circuit because you can't get the original part numbers anymore, sure. usually. Most of them have equivalents, don't they? I mean, for the most yeah. part. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you can, you know, go through the data sheets and find something. Um, get on Audio Karma and find out what people are using for a particular circuit they've had good luck with. Uh, that's a good way to get part numbers. One thing, I, one thing I have heard over the years uh, being in bands and stuff is a lot of guitarists, they like the sound of germanium transistors. Is there anything mm -hmm. in that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, they clip softer. Um, so if you're if you're playing guitar, you know, tubes, germanium transistors and things like that, they, they all sound different. And our next question comes from Craig. Hey Rob, beyond the soldering iron, needle nose and strippers, are there new tools that changed your repair process? A couple things come to mind. Uh, digital storage oscilloscopes that are pretty affordable now. Um, yeah, get a decent one for less than $400 a lot of times. And uh, they have a lot of functions on them that are just really handy, like frequency counters built in, um, FFT, which stands for Fast Fourier Transform. It's a, it's a mathematical algorithm that's built in that, that causes your oscilloscope to read uh, much like a uh, frequency or a spectrum analyzer. And it's really handy for a quick check of distortion. And you can actually see little spikes where there are harmonics or if there aren't any. Um, that's something that, that is a, a real time saver sometimes. Uh, they don't show super low levels of distortion. There are other tests for that. Uh, but 
for a still, quick test. For a quick test, yeah. Um, I also like those little component analyzers. Yeah. Uh, that you can uh, check leads and stuff like that without having to figure it out, you know. Say if you have an unknown transistor, you know, it'll tell you typically what kind of transistor it is and what the lead pinout is. I think I got one right here so we yeah. can actually show them. Yeah, they're also good for, you know, kind of at least a preliminary match if you're going to try to match two transistors. Um, because they'll have beta and things like that on them. It's not the same as a curve tracer, although these you can plug into your laptop and it will make a curve tracer for you for different transistors. Yeah, and these are cheap too. Well, this yeah. one's a more expensive one, but I know you can get, and I've had several of them, mm -hmm. um, little $40, mm -hmm. uh, it looks almost the same. Mm -hmm. It'll tell you if it's a resistor, capacitor, what mm -hmm. have you, and all the values, even some ESR, stuff like mm -hmm. that with capacitors. And really handy. Yeah. It replaces several big pieces of test equipment. Yeah. And um, I have one just like that. I also have the little $40 one. And the $40 one's the one that gets in my mobile toolbox and gets beat up a lot. Mm -hmm. Falling from here to there still works. My good one's at home. So yeah, there there are there are actually a lot of things, mostly in the way of, of test equipment, um, that you can get now that's more affordable, capable, and compact. So I remember when I started this this out, uh, digital multimeter was very expensive and only had a few basic functions. You know? Yeah. Um, now you can get one for hundred dollars or less that has uh, true RMS capability. Uh, capacitance, frequency, all all kinds of things. Everything built right into it. One little pocket handheld device that would have been a wall of equipment. Yep. 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 Great question. Appreciate it. Our next question comes from Michael. Which electrolytic capacitors would you consider top of the line name brands and why? Also, is it a good practice to use film capacitors in place of small value electrolytic capacitors? in the signal path. Please give options as to why or why not. I haven't had any problems with any of the major brands. Uh, I, I tend to use Nishikon a lot, uh, but Panasonic, Worth, CDE, they're all good. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't get one of those little capacitor kits from Amazon that has <laughs> 500 electrolytics for, for a buck, you yeah. know. Uh, that's okay to have around for hobby projects or just to temporarily pop something in there to test it or something like mm -hmm. that. And truthfully, I really haven't had much problem with those either, but in the long run, you know, I don't think they're going to hold up for decades like the older ones. So I don't, you know, I, I think if you use any of those major name brands from Mauser or DigiKey and get the specs, get, getting it with the right specs is the main thing. Um, you know, ripple current and ESR and things like that. And of course, the voltage and capacitance. It, it's, and it's difficult to stick with one brand if, you know, to find what you need in stock that has the specs that you want. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the smaller capacitors you're only going to find in worth, for example, you know, 0.47 microfarad, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, not that the other companies don't make them, but, you know, it's hard to find them in stock. 
So especially now, and I mean, yes. there, there, there's a really now. there's a really good point there in that, you know, like everything else in the supply chain, really the last two years we've seen the prices of capacitors, some capacitors, especially the large ones, mm -hmm. double and triple in price, and their availability is almost non-existent. Yeah, we're just now starting to get some of the larger value capacitors uh, available. Really, I'm thinking about like the larger. Um, 33,000 microfarad capacitors by 100 volts. Haven't been able to get those for a while, or if we can, it's a really, we, we have a selection of maybe one or two, where pre-COVID, uh, there might have been 20 to choose from. So there's an issue really with finding, especially with the size of the capacitor, finding the right size that fits the original mounting style, even just the physical space. Some manufacturers would use maybe a, a non-common shape, as in, I know Yamaha did this a lot because, and Sansui, where they would lay the capacitors flat. And so they'd be a longer and thinner capacitor than what a normal one would be. Yeah. And with the amount of availability really being scaled down over the last two years, it's made replacing those capacitors a lot harder and a lot more expensive. That, that's just one of the things that we've noticed um, over the last couple of years is just capacitor availability and prices have really just gotten crazy. Yeah. And the physical fit, like you say, uh, the newer capacitors for the same ratings uh, tend to be smaller. You yeah. Know? They develop better methods of using chemical etching on the foil to give it more surface area so they can make a more compact package. Yep. Well, that doesn't help if you can't clamp the thing in. Right. You know. And a lot of times we go over voltage, mm -hmm. you know, just to, you know, if to you get want one large enough to get one big enough. That will clamp down. Yep. Yeah. So if you, let's say you've got a, um, let's, we'll just throw out a couple random numbers, but let's say you got a 15,000 microfarad capacitor with at 50 volts. In order for us to get a capacitor to fit the housing of where that capacitor needs to go, we would maybe go to a 15,000 microfarad capacitor to a 100 or an 80 volt um, rating so that it increases the diameter to make it fit in the housing. Otherwise, you have to use adapter rings and stuff like that and um, make something work, so. Yeah, you do what you have to do when you're working on old equipment. Yep, you have to. You have to be a. You have to have a little bit of an engineer's mind because uh, sometimes you have to fabricate stuff. Yeah. The other part of his question was: Is it good practice to use film capacitors in place of small value electrolytic capacitors in the signal path? A lot of times you can do that, uh, but it it's not always going to work out the way you want um, because electrolytics have a little bit more built-in resistance uh, than a film capacitor. Uh, depending on the circuit, sometimes it can ring or oscillate. By ringing, I mean is the one there's a, an electrical transient through there. Um, there's nothing to damp it from actually ringing like a bell. It'll have like a little resonance peak that'll, you know, it'll usually zero it out. Sometimes it will go into oscillation. That kind of thing doesn't happen very often. Yeah, uh, but it it can be a problem. Sometimes you might you might put one in and then uh, you you put a square wave through it, and at the end of the transition, where the voltage will make a sharp up, 
level and then go down where it tries to go down, it will do this, mm. a little bit of a, a rigging. Um, if you could hear it audibly, if it were a mechanical equivalent, it would have like a little uh, bell sound to it or something like that. Well, that gets into your audio. So sure. sometimes you can, sometimes you can. And there is a physical, uh, speaking of the physical side of this, film caps are a lot larger than electrolytics. So you do have a physical constraint too, right? Yeah, yeah. Generally for the, the same ratings, they're, they're fairly larger and you could, uh, have problems putting them in. Yeah, physically putting them in. I've I've done it. Um, yeah, you know they're they're great as far as they approach the ideal capacitor with uh, uh, no equivalent series resistance, which you know that's what we refer to as ESR. Um, and they have a lot going for them, but they don't always work in some circuits. They just kind of need that uh, that built-in resistance even if it's just you know tenths of an ohm or something like that so in your opinion then you don't really see much of a point of switching electrolytics over to generally not no yeah. great question and also uh we did get a few questions that were really specific questions on repairing a specific model and there's just absolutely no way to address those types of questions just because you know without the unit in front of us it's just way too in-depth. So unfortunately, we can't answer those types of questions. And our next question, this is from Kristen, and they say, Rob, have you always been a wizard at vintage audio repair? Hmm. I'll let you know if I ever start thinking I'm a wizard. <laughs> I'm just persistent. <laughs> Do you live in a castle? Uh, no. <laughs> Do you have any fiery orbs or any special abilities? No, just a paper Burger King crown. <laughs> uh, you are officially a wizard then. <laughs> and this question comes from Troy. What was something that was a nightmare to work on, but really felt worth it in the end? There have been a lot of those. I'd say the most recent one was uh, probably uh, Marantz 300 DC. Really nice amp, but very difficult to service and that they uh, as a DC coupled amp which most of these do and when one part goes bad on those a lot of times it just pretty much shells out everything um, the board needed a lot of overhaul and uh, some of the old Marantz had problems with oscillation uh, they tended to get a feedback going you can't hear it, but it will, it, it's basically the amps going balls to the wall, um, but at an at a ultrasonic frequency that you can't hear, and everything just gets hot, oh. and it smokes it. And that's what happened with that, and trying to get it to quit doing that is difficult because the design was a little bit on the threshold. Mm -hmm. And when you're, you know, subbing new components in and things like that aren't exactly the same, it can be a problem. Um, I ended up having to replace uh, a number of film capacitors in there, which usually don't go bad. Sometimes they do. But the, that was a known problem with that one. Um, there was a 250 as well. Maybe the same series? Yeah, a 250. Uh, Marantz. Is similar. Yeah. yeah. I think it's an older one. Oh. And that one had, that one 
has problems with the range of adjustment was too great uh, as far as being able to set the bias idle current and set the zero voltage uh, balance so that when there's no signal, there's no DC coming out to your speakers. Most of them have a range where you really can't, even if you crank them all the way, one way or the other, you can't screw it up too badly. Mm -hmm. um, this one, if you turned it just a little too far, it just self-destructed. So that was a problem. Yeah, those are the two I remember just from. Yeah, yeah, so they're great amps. I love Marantz. Some of the older ones, just by design, they were they were kind of prone to oscillation or other forms of self-destruction. Yeah. yeah. So that one was a tedious one. I worked on it here for a while. I ended up taking it home, working on it over yeah. the weekends and things like that, because I was like, well, I'm this far into it, and I really want to make this guy happy. It's a great amp. He's a nice guy, and yep. you know, uh, got it working. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's there's been there's been quite a few of those. All right, next question. Uh, this comes from Jukebox Alley. Where, who, or what courses to take to become a tech for the hobby? And I think what they're asking really is just you know how do I how do I get some formal education uh, to become a tech? Um, for vintage stereo equipment? Well, that's a tricky one because um, servicing any kind of electronics down to the component level um, is kind of an obsolete trade. Um, I was probably one of the last years that they offered at a, a local community college, but I don't know if there are any, there may be some night classes available if you check with community colleges, um, things like that, you know, individual courses instead of an entire program. Uh, fortunately, nowadays we have a lot of online resources. Yeah. Um, electronics tutorials is uh, one good website. Um, there may be some good courses online at uh, Brilliant or Skillshare. I haven't checked. Um, Mr. Carlson's Lab, if you're a Patreon subscriber, he offers a complete course in electronics. I haven't looked into it to see what all is in there, but he's he's brilliant. Yeah. Um, that would be a, a good and inexpensive way to probably start out. Uh, of course, if you can get an apprenticeship with someone that's doing it, that's great. But you still have to learn the basics first. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like uh, if you're going to move to Japan and, and, and do something, the first thing you have to do is learn Japanese. You know, and that's the same with electronics, learning the, uh, you know, how things work, how to do the calculations and things like that, what the different components do and look like and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, you can get hints from learning, working with somebody if you can. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of on your own to learn it. For more advanced students, uh, I would, s there's a lot of articles on Elliott Sound Products website. Uh, brilliant Australian, I believe he's self-educated engineer. <clears throat> you mentioned this with uh, Mr. Carlson's lap. There are a lot of really good videos on YouTube yes. um, that, that are free. And I don't think taking a course, at least in my opinion, um, to get a certificate really is gonna do you very much um, as far as what, that, what doors that's gonna open. You either kind of know how to repair stuff right. and you're gonna prove it or uh, you don't. And I also think 
especially with vintage electronics, because you're working on a piece of equipment that's 40 or 50 years old, there's a lot of repairs that require more than just electronics repair knowledge in that, once again, these boards are getting old, you're dealing with old, old solder and connections, and a lot of times repairs are physical, as in, I'm even thinking of the pre-out main end jumpers on a lot of these receivers and amplifiers. Those connections have been there and they've been in use for 50 years. A lot of times it's a physical problem. Mm -hmm. So not only do you need the technical ability to repair electronics in general, but you also, there's a lot of tips and tricks that you learn along the way that can't be taught in a textbook. It's just that stuff's not there. And the solution might be something that you have to come up with on your own. So in a, in a way... Um, like a volume control, it's been turned on and off 100,000 times. Yeah. And might just be worn out. Right. It probably wasn't a problem in 1978, yeah. you know. Yep. So but it is now. Capacitors that have dried up and gone bad just from sitting, whether they were used or not. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. So yeah, that you're exactly right, and that's that's kind of the hands-on experience thing, the apprenticeship, or just your own hands-on experience. Yep. Um, but definitely look into some online resources. Look uh, look at community colleges. See if anybody offers anything like that. Yep. Get your basics down, mm -hmm. and then. Um, Maybe jump on eBay and get a parts or repair unit of something simple, uh, maybe a, a lower line or midline vintage receiver that's maybe in poor condition and use that as your guinea pig mm -hmm. and, and go from there. Don't grab a Pioneer 1250, think that uh, a guy on Audio Karma is gonna walk you through the repair process. Mm -hmm. You need to you need to kind of experience some of this stuff on pieces that uh, maybe don't have as much value. So Yeah, and things that are your own and not yeah. somebody else's. Yeah, definitely. When, when you're learning uh, the, uh, the basics, don't neglect the electrical safety aspect of it too because you're not gonna help anybody if you get electrocuted or start something on fire or something like that. Yeah, so. definitely. Great question. Uh, hopefully you uh, do pursue it a little bit and um, see if it's something that you want to take seriously. Please keep putting your questions down in our YouTube post. And um, if this is something that you guys are interested in, then we will keep on doing them because this was a lot of fun. I love the subject. I've been working with Rob for going on six years now, and it's, it's great just to sit down and talk to him about anything. So you don't have to twist my arm in order to do these types of videos. Rob, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Um, sure. I hope everybody out there appreciates uh, your knowledge and uh, the information you're sharing because it is from somebody that is embedded in this. Maybe more than a lot of people out there are. You know, when, you, when you're in vintage stereo equipment repair every single day, you can't help but learn all kinds of tips and tricks and things that make repairing vintage electronics more successful. That's definitely um, my history with Rob. He, um, he is invaluable to Skylabs and... Thanks for listening to another episode of the Skylabs Vintage Audio Podcast.